I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Dakshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. For the past week, we have witnessed a widespread protest across China. Footage of large gatherings breaking China's stringent COVID-19 rules and people disobeying police orders are found across the internet. To understand what's happening, I am joined by in-house China watcher Manoj Kevil Ramani to explain what is happening in China, the origins of these protests and the potential outcomes. Hi Manoj. Hi Pranav, thanks for having me. Uh, Manoj, I am not a China watcher and everything that I know about the protests are on the internet, which is the footage of people protesting creative ways by students who are having math equations to write freedom. What's happening across the country? I think what you're seeing happening across the country is sort of the venting of around sort of three years of pent up frustration. You know, we've seen over the last four or five days uh, and it's worth sort of you know pointing out that we're recording this on Monday November 28th in the morning at 11 o'clock because again this is a fluid situation and it's tricky to sort of predict how things go but what we're seeing is that there's a widespread scale of protests across different parts of the country people using very similar strategies and tactics to try and push back against what they see is unreasonable unsustainable prolonged controls related to COVID-19, which have disrupted life for the last three years. And I think it's, again, it's really interesting because this is happening at a time where the World Football World Cup is taking place in Qatar. So there's been reportage about how people are, you know, sitting in China where you're, you know, few out cases of COVID in a particular city or in a particular locality lead to a shutdown and mass testing. Whereas you're watching the Football World Cup with 50,000 fans in a stadium without masks, uh, enjoying life as normal. So this is to me sort of the three years of frustration with the COVID policy boiling over. I think that there's also a case where, you know, people heading into the 20th Party Congress in October felt that, and again, we saw a lot of reporting around this. There was a sense that, you know, there's a sense of dread. This is something that needs to be done. Let's get it over with. And once that's over with, the political sort of environment shifts, perhaps this COVID control measures will start to change and China will get to some degree of normalcy or there'd be a roadmap for that normalcy. And I think that because you're not seeing that, you're seeing people frustrated, coming on the streets, essentially protesting against lockdown policies and these, you know, mass testing, repeated testing, but also you know, that's morphing, like you said, you know, like in Tsinghua University, there were students who were holding up the Friedman equation, uh, essentially talking about freedom. So you'll see these creative ways of protesting because you see lots of censorship. And that's just one sort of example. There are many other examples. For example, people are using a blank sheet of paper to essentially say that, you know, this is censorship. I can't say what I need to say. People are chanting against a cult of personality of Xi Jinping. People are protesting with, you know, locking themselves up in sort of chains and cuffs and saying that, look, we want freedom from this sort of lockdown system. People are, uh, you know, dropping flowers, candlelight vigils. People are even sort of being sarcastic and saying, yes, 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 give me more tests, give me more lockdowns. 
uh, as a means of sort of pushing back against the authorities because if you're being that politically correct then how do you sort of crack down on something like that so you're seeing that across the country and i think it you know last night sunday night there were protests in beijing with the protesters sort of heading up towards tiananmen square and these are really significant because we've not seen something coordinated to this degree taking place in china for decades that's not to say that protests are something that are new in china protests happen even covid protests have happened if you just go back to april may this year in shanghai there was lot of anger and lot of protesting against the covid policies in shanghai the zero covid policy um, so it's not new if you go back sort of a couple of years when the first set of lockdowns happened in 2020 you know there were places where you know there is a famous sort of story about fight between two sort of towns or villages over a bridge because of the quarantine policies where one sort of center one part of the one town was quarantined and people couldn't move out but people were trying to move out and the other people were stopping them so it's not like this entire process of zero covid has been frictionless there has been tremendous friction and protest but the scale of these protests and the pushback against the authorities against what seems like a never ending zero covid is uh, unprecedented so i think in that sort of sense it's really significant what's also significant is that like you know we've seen calls of freedom of press uh, dignity and human rights in beijing there were even calls for respecting universal values which is which i'm sure sort of raises flags for the chinese because the chinese if you go back to sort of 2013 the government sort of talked about Uh, universal values being a, an ideological threat a western sort of ideological threat and you know they've sort of cracked down on that over the years so that sort of pushback i think is politically very sensitive more than just the pushback against the lockdown uh, and again we have to see where this goes yeah i just saw while i was reading through everything about the situation i heard that china has banned the sale of a4 size paper because it's probably a national security threat i don't know if this is a seriously true or whether it's internet rumor but it's definitely something very quirky and fun and definitely something that we might think would come out of china but you know there must be some, because you know you mentioned that in the past 3 years these lockdowns have been mass spread and you know these have been for hundreds of kilometers there have been lockdowns so but what led to it at this point previously in our personal conversations we have heard that you have told me that china does provide a room for people to vent their anger and they allow this so that you know this pent up anger doesn't lead to something much bigger so at what point did these mass protests begin was there any any trigger to this or did china just fail the government just failed control these angers Yeah I think there are two three sort of trigger points that one can sort of point to one is this sort of like I said this prolonged sense of frustration and this never ending sense of you know when will how will you exit zero covid how will you exit this situation of zero covid and the fact that the government doesn't seem to have a plan of how you will exit this current situation for most countries what we've seen is that there has been a mix of you know building up medical resources vaccination you know cases rising but you arriving at some degree of herd immunity there's been an uncomfortable ugly mix and therefore most countries have seen deaths have seen ri- tremendous rise in infections and have dealt with it some better than others but mostly everybody's dealt with it in a very ungainly fashion because there's very limited that you can do there's no perfect exit from the situation what we've not seen the chinese government do is actually take some of the steps that you know most people think would lead them to exit the situation primarily being vaccination but sort of before i get to that you know like you asked what is the primary step primary sort of trigger to these protests i think if the primary trigger you know the proximate cause is on thursday you had a fire at an apartment complex in urumqi which is you know the capital of xinjiang 
province. And that fire led to the death of 10 people with nine others getting injured. It caught public imagination because a lot of the videos from the fire were going viral online. And one of the big criticisms was that, look, this is an apartment complex which had been sealed off, with the area had been sealed off because of zero COVID policy. And that made it extremely difficult for firefighters to get in time, you know, when they tried to sort of spray water up to the fire where the apartments were, uh, the water wouldn't reach because you were at a certain distance. Yeah, And if anybody sort of who's not familiar with the sort of lockdown processes in China, you know, the, you would build these big barricades around societies, unlike say India, where, you know, you would just put a board or you'd put a tape around a house or things like that. Here, you would actually physically barricade things. Often exits to in these buildings and these complexes would be padlocked to prevent people from getting out because that's what local authorities did. So that's a real fire hazard, right? So at the end of the day, these deaths led to public outreach because the sense was that this zero COVID policy, which is unsustainable, and in Urmuchi, in large parts, it's been there for a very long time, for months on end now, some of these different degrees, intensity of lockdowns. And that led to protests. It led to protests in other cities in Xinjiang. And uh, in Urmuchi itself, the government then came out and said, well, okay, okay, we are stepping back from zero COVID. We are going to do a phased easing out because things are getting better. So it tells you that therefore that zero COVID is not is as much a medical issue and a sort of precise sort of scientific approach to this, but it's also a political approach to this, that your yeah. outcomes are politically malleable. So what that what this did was that it led to outrage in other parts of the country, right? It, it led to this sense that, look, people died in vain. You could have prevented this and it became worse because of the COVID policy. So to me, that sort of is the thing that led to this sense of anger. Uh, and therefore, in these protests that you've seen in the country, lots of the videos that are shared, you'll see people talking about how, you know, we're all Chinese and we are one country and we are one people. And this is a common cause, this frustration with COVID and official high-handedness, which is rallying everybody together and against the leadership. There's also, uh, you know, a challenge in all of this because, you know, like I said, before the, after the party Congress, there was a sense that you would see some sort of change and some sort of easing in zero COVID. Although people like me who are watching this, I didn't think that there would be anything significant changing. But on November 11th, we did see the state council announce what it called as 20 optimization measures. These measures to some degree led to, you know, there was a certain amount of easing, but it's very, very minimal. You know, so for example, the amount of the period of time that you would stay in quarantine was reduced. For international travelers, the quarantine time was reduced. Testing, you know, was to be done only when certain criteria is met as opposed to just random mass testing. At the same time, like say, you know, when you're blocking off areas because of outbreaks, areas were classified into low risk, medium risk, high risk. This new optimization set of measures said that, look, there's no nothing like a medium risk, either it's low risk or high risk. So which meant that you need to be much more careful in how you're classifying something as high risk. So essentially, these measures were trying to make the policy much more easier on people. But if what that did was that local governments take that as what the central government wants. They try to ease up. But as they try to ease up, you're going to see cases shoot up. And as you're going to see cases shoot up, the local government is again going to sort of crack down and try to isolate as much as possible, test as much as possible. Because from the central leadership, the messaging is essentially that you need to do three things. You need to make sure that 
health and life is safe that's your primary concern but you need to make sure that livelihood and economic order is maintained and you need to make sure that people don't have you know the burdens on people are reduced now these are three fairly incompatible you know outcomes that local governments need to achieve so you're going to see a lot of confusion in how policy is implemented how policy is interpreted from the central leadership and how policy is implemented and that meant that you know for people on a daily basis things just kept changing so quickly you know one minute you felt like oh okay these are easing measures the next minute you stepped out of your apartment complex went out to probably get a cup of coffee and by the time you came back a case was there in your apartment complex and your option was either go back and stay in lockdown or just stay out and find another place to stay so yeah it's frustrating to be in that process and therefore you're seeing this sort of outpouring so to me that's the sort of proximate and sort of long term cause for what we are seeing today is just a confused policy with outcomes which are contradictory and the requirements you know are just impossible to meet in some ways and the public is frustrated with that yeah that's quite interesting and it raises two other follow up questions the first is regarding to china's zero health covid policy itself and the second is the friction between the central government and the local governments and let me come to the former first you know in southeast asia there was this policy where after some time they left zero covid policy and they allowed for self reporting they had they had easing of measures and they allowed mass vaccination they were able to mobilize resources and the vaccination capacity in greater numbers so that you had vaccination immunity and some bit of natural immunity as well and finally you know in countries like singapore which has similar population densities people now can walk in public places without masks what led to china sticking to its zero covid policy itself even though everyone around them was doing something that was completely different Yeah look i think one of the reasons zero covid sort of sustains and what so what led to it is essentially the initial lockdown in wuhan i mean it was so new at that point of time everybody was struggling to figure out what exactly you should be doing with this and you know beijing adopted the policy of full lockdown in wuhan which lasted for 70 plus days and you know and it felt that that was a successful measure that was successfully containing the virus limiting the amount of damage in, in terms of human lives limiting the spread of the virus and in some way the sustenance of zero covid has been an out has been a product of its own success and for beijing you know the trap is partly a trap of its own success the fact that it has historically over the last two and a half years managed to contain the spread of the virus managed to limit the sort of damage in terms of human lives lost has meant that the policy has sustained what the challenge that sort of the policy faces is that the virus no longer behaves as it used to you know the omicron variant and its sub variants are much more transmissible are much more difficult to contain than you know the earlier variants of the virus and therefore it's you know if you read chinese sort of commentaries and thinking of the central leadership through those commentaries in chinese language newspapers what they are basically saying still is that this is a race against the virus is a race against time which to me is sort of no longer it no longer makes sense because the virus is always going to win that race you know it's so much more highly transmissible and you're going to struggle to contain it but you're still adhering to that policy in part because it is really difficult to shift away from it because you feel that it's been successful but also in part because the level of resources that you have in terms yeah. of medical resources so at present beijing is saying that they need to build up icu facilities across the country and icu facilities across hospitals in the country should be around 10% of the total number of hospital beds right now it's far far short of okay. in terms of just hospital beds per sort of 100000 of population there are 
four ICU beds per 100,000 population, which is way lower than what, say, several East Asian countries or developed countries have. At present, they have about 6.7 beds in hospitals per 1,000 population, which is much lower. So they need to beef up those resources. They need to be able to create more fever clinics in which you can treat, uh, you know, milder infections in some way. They are talking about creating much more makeshift sort of hospitals like you saw during the Wuhan lockdown, if you remember about three years ago. So they're talking about doing much more of that. And those will become like sort of your centralized quarantine facilities. And there is video and footage and images of, you know, large fields in different cities where you've set up these big tents and hospitals, you know, makeshift beds and things like that, where you're going to quarantine asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic patients so that you can sort of contain the spread of the virus. And that in itself is a concern for people, right? I mean, you know, if you test positive, you're suddenly separated from your family and you're put into one of these centralized facilities and people don't want to go there. So therefore, there's much more resistance because uh, suddenly you're there for like five, seven days and, you know, until you test negative. The big sort of challenge, however, from doing away with zero COVID is the fact that China has a large elderly population, you know, a couple of hundred million people. Among that, if you even just go to the above 80 population, that is significant. And that's a challenge, right? Because that population has not necessarily received overwhelming amounts of vaccination, right? So the vaccination rate for people over 80 in China okay. is about 66%. So about a third of the people who are aged over 80 have not received their basic two dose of vaccination. And in terms of booster, only 40% has received that booster. So there's a huge population of the elderly which are unvaccinated. And for various reasons, you know, people don't necessarily trust the vaccines. People are much more careful. They've bought into a lot of disinformation and people are much more, you know, resistant to sort of getting something put in their body. And it's been strange because the Chinese state, which otherwise can do lots of draconian things, has struggled to be able to impose vaccine mandates, to be able to force people into vaccinations and things like that. In fact, earlier this year in Beijing, they introduced a vaccine mandate to access public spaces and it was pulled back within two days amid public anger. That's it really is, quite yeah. surprising. It is. And this, I think, is the big challenge that if you don't have this sort of barrier of vaccination, then how do you open up? Interesting thing also with this is that while we're seeing a lot of state resources being spent on increased testing and tremendous amount of money is being spent on testing, we're not seeing the same sort of effort in vaccination. You know, for most people in the West, I think they sort of point to the fact that China does not have mRNA vaccines, but then India does not have mRNA vaccines either. But we've managed to open up after taking hits. For Xi Jinping, I think the challenge is, will those hits to people's health, if you open up, amount to greater social instability? Because, you know, and I think people in India can sort of relate to it based on the second wave that happened in India. You know, the, the number of deaths, hospitalizations, and lack of resources, all of that. From Xi Jinping's point of view, if you spent the last nearly three years talking about the fact that our effort to contain COVID is morally superior and our party is therefore demonstrated their moral superiority by maintaining people's lives and not leading to that massive loss of lives like, say, the West or India. Now you open up and you have this sudden loss of life. What does that do to their entire narrative, legitimacy, and of course, the actual loss of life and the instability that that... So I think it's sort of a wicked problem that they are caught in where you need to open up because the costs, public frustration, economic costs are rising. But also when you open up, you're going to face these challenges and the preparations for opening up, you've for some reason or the other just not been able to do. 
Yeah. And is that, I think the final, the frustration of opening up, is that because of difference in approaches to how you solve this problem between the local governments and the central governments? To what degree of autonomy do the provincial governments or the local governments have? And what are the incentives to not adhere to this autonomy if they have autonomy or they just go with the centers and directions? Yeah, I think the, the, the thing is that because this zero, zero COVID business has become such a thing that's driven by the center and the center has sort of constantly and repeatedly said things like, we don't want any deviation, we don't want any distortion, we don't want any, and I quote, war weariness, we don't want any slackening in your efforts, you must implement what is being said to the T. And while saying that, of course, like I said, it's sort of also giving three very contradict outputs and outcomes that people need to achieve. So what is left local governments is with, I mean, if, if you're a local government official, you're looking at what is the political priority. And repeatedly you're being told that the political priority is people's health and life. That is your primary goal. So you're going to make sure that you do that. And if you know the best way to do that is to try and shut things down, block things down, test more, then you're going to go back to doing that. And that's what local authorities are doing because that's the most politically safe thing. At different times, you know, there is documentation to say that local authorities have responded to public pressure. So, you know, they have sort of eased up in certain cases when there has been public pressure. And the most recent example is what happened in Xinjiang. After this fire, you know, the Ormuchi government said that we'll step back. There was another city, Korla, where the government said, you know, there were protests outside the main government building. And these were Han Chinese protesting, not Uyghurs. And the government basically said, yes, yes, we have, we've achieved zero covid we are going to go back to normal somehow so there have been cases where there have been steps taken to ease public frustration and anxiety but by and large if you're a local official and you're being told that you know and an outbreak will potentially be politically damaging to you what you will do is that you will have higher restrictions than might be needed and that's why again in central sort of in central diktats you will hear things like you know don't adopt a one size fits all approach or don't adopt an approach where, you know, you're adding layers upon layers of levels of control, which is creating public frustration. So in many ways, central the central authorities are sort of tried to have their cake and eat it too. Whereas the local authorities are trying to just sort of, you know, their primary goal is to make sure that they are politically correct, because this is also a political issue for them. And that means a survival issue for them. So it's a difficult sort of balancing act. And in doing all of this, what's happening is that the economic cost, as much as, you know, we talk about the Chinese economy slowing down as a whole, the economic cost is largely a problem for the local authorities because with the property market struggling, with, you know, our businesses sort of being shut down, revenues are basically falling down for local governments. Yet they are spending much more because all this testing infrastructure, the expenditure on that has to come from the local governments. It's not coming from the central government. So for them, your revenues and your incomes are shrinking, but your expenditure is going up and you have very little policy innovation room, right? Because the center is saying you must adhere to what we are doing, what we are saying to the T. So it's really a difficult position for them to be in. And that's, like I said, leading to a lot of confused outcomes, which then further fuels public frustration. Yeah. And uh, talking about swiftly going to from what you spoke about, political damage. What is the political damage that's created now? You have such large number of people coming out. You know, I can only recall that Tiananmen, I think this might be even larger than the Tiananmen scale of protests. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So what are the political outcomes? What are the demands? Are the demands still related to easing of COVID restrictions or have these radically networked groups evolved in such a way that it's no more just about the COVID-19 restriction. It's more about more fundamental issues like freedoms and censorship. 
Yeah, I think we should be very careful. So, so firstly, the Tiananmen analogy. I think that we need to sort of refresh our memories. Tiananmen Square was not just Tiananmen Square in 1989. It was protests in large parts of the country and they were much more bigger. They were much more sustained. You know, at present, we are nowhere close to anything what that was. And I think that that's not necessarily even a good parallel to see what we're seeing today. What we're seeing today is... You know, that there is anger across on many issues from the economy to, you know, lively to sort of what's happening to people's lives to freedom of restriction on freedoms to, you know, restrictions on how the media covers things, all of that. There's frustration on all of those areas. But I don't think we're anywhere close to what we saw in 1989. What we right now have is, you know, predominantly frustration against the zero COVID policy which is being channeled, which, you know, people have, which has brought people out to the streets. While we are seeing slogans and we are seeing some sort of anger with regard to, you know, Xi Jinping's personality cult, you know, and, you know, the idea of how the press doesn't necessarily cover the view of the people and it's the voice of the party. So the, the idea of human rights, but human rights in the context of the zero COVID policy, as opposed to something broader than that. I don't think that we should sort of see any of this as something as a, at present as a challenge to the political authority of the Communist Party of China. I think it, right now it remains something that is specific to the zero COVID policy. While there are other areas that people are talking about, there's a lot of ways in which this can go. And there are many ways in which this can sort of unravel to becoming something bigger. But that said, there is a lot of state can power authority that exists to control these sort of change these sort of movements you know uh, what we have seen so far is very limited use of force you know very 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 limited use of force we saw some scenes in shanghai where you know some protesters were beaten up interestingly we saw that in shanghai the key protest was taking place on a lane called Urumuchi Road uh, okay. in support of the sort of people in Xinjiang. And we saw the, after a couple of days of protests, we saw the authorities just taking away the signboard call which said <laughs> Urumuchi Road. So, you know, so there is a multiple ways in which this happens. We've seen some protests at Tsinghua University, Peking University, which echoed these broader calls of freedom and things like that. But we've also seen statements issued by students and alumni from both those universities, which don't necessarily talk about systemic change or anything like that. They essentially talk about the frustration with the zero COVID policy. So it's it's really important for us to temper what we think may be happening and what the outcomes may be. The state has tremendous means to control this at present. It's not deploying most of those. And I think it's important to say that if it deploys far greater coercion, which is visible, then you might also end up seeing far more anger. So I think it's in a, again, it's a difficult situation for the Chinese leadership. They need to be able to allow the people to vent their anger, which I think they have sort of allowed to some degree without necessarily responding with a heavy hand. But also I think what you're seeing is that you're seeing that there is some beginnings of levels of control being asserted. When you see these protests suddenly take deeper political shape, for example, the slogans like for Xi Jinping to step down is when you're likely to see far harsher sort of crackdowns. A smart move by the government would be a mix between some degree of denial of space, cracking down, some degree of identifying the leaders of these protests, which is again difficult to do because these are, like you said, radically network societies in many ways, picking off those leaders like we saw in Hong Kong, but also trying to address the zero COVID problem. To me, that is the real challenge before the government. How do you address this problem while 
also not having the health damages that you think you will have. Now, one positive outcome from the government's point of view could be that it could start easing zero COVID. There could be health challenges, but it could sort of start wash its hands and start saying that, look, you wanted opening. You know, so what are we supposed to do? But, you know, that's easier said than done, right? When you start seeing cases and deaths go up or or run on hospital and medical resources, at the end of the day, the government will be under pressure. So that's easier said, but it's difficult to do. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that the position that Xi Jinping finds himself in just a month after he, you know, had his big coronation for his third term as general secretary yeah. of the party, you know, and it's it's not, it's clearly, this is going to be the defining challenge for him over the next six months to the year and how the party manages it will tell us a lot more about political stability in China. Because I think this is, this is a fright that the Communist Party is receiving. And I think it's, it's something that hopefully will change policy in a positive direction, but I'm not necessarily terribly optimistic that that will happen. Okay. Uh, I see this as a triangle. For one, you want to control health without risking mass outbreak of the virus. And you want to ensure that people went, but without ensuring that there's a political outbreak. And the third one is you want to coerce the public into, you know, to fall in line, but not to the extent that the anger is even more built up. So it's definitely a challenge and I've learned a lot from this conversation. And as these protests continue, please follow Manoj's daily blog and his newsletter for everything on China. Thank you, Manoj. And thank you very much for joining us on All Things Policy. Thanks, Manoj. Take care. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website, takshashila.org.in.